was a JAMA study published actually quite recently and it We've done this stuff for about 15 years anyway, but it's another big meta-analysis of, you know, is, is a little bit of alcohol good for you? No, the data show really clearly, it, you know, funny enough, it's a neurotoxin. It's not gonna be good for you in any way, shape or form. And when those those studies, oh, a little bit of red wine does you good. And believe me, Lee, I used to latch onto them when I'm yeah. like thinking, well, if a little bit does me good, then, you know, I'm pressing the magic button on my wine box, so I'm thinking, yes, it's, not, it's never gonna be a health drink. Welcome to the 1000 Day Sober Podcast. My name is Lee Davey. I am not an alcoholic. I refuse to be anonymous. I am alcohol-free as fuck, and I live a self-led life as often as I can. And I spend every single moment of my life helping other people do the same, like right now. I want to talk a little bit about power and alcohol. Now, as the listeners to this podcast will know, I believe that we are birthed into an invisible and violent and dominant belief system that I call the liquid lie. I used to call it alcoholism, but I I find that that's a bit confusing for everybody. So today I call it the liquid lie. And because of the liquid lie, we are raised to believe that alcohol is normal, it is nice, it is necessary, it's natural, and it is noble. And because of that, from a very, very young age, we are conditioned societally, culturally, to really get excited and to really get enthused about drinking alcohol. In many ways, it is a rite of passage into becoming a woman and into becoming a man, right? It is absolutely ubiquitous, and this liquid light is everywhere, all around the globe, okay? And one of the ways that this liquid light works is it, when you get deeper into it, it it has this ability to make you believe when you really become reliant on alcohol, that alcohol and alcohol addiction and alcohol reliance and alcohol use disorder and alcoholism is a really powerful thing, right? It's a really, really powerful thing. If you Google what are the top five most addictive drugs in the world on Google right now, alcohol is right up there as one of the most addictive drugs in the world, okay? So, There is a narrative, a cultural narrative that is woven into our DNA through the liquid lie that says that alcohol has all its power. If you want to be someone who is alcohol-free as fuck, you need to change that narrative. You need to question it, okay? And this question arises through a number of interactions with people recently who I'm working with as clients who have got a lot, a lot of sobriety time under their wing and... Life is going to shit as it does. It goes up and it goes down, right? And then when it's going down, there is this question that comes up. Is this supposed to happen now I don't drink alcohol? Right? Am I supposed to be this overwhelmed now I don't drink alcohol? Am I supposed to be this sad now I don't drink alcohol? Am I supposed to be this apathetic, this, this lethargic, this tired? Am I supposed to be this angry and this irritable now I don't drink alcohol? And I think the two questions can be divorced. I think that in everyday circumstances, you're always going to have these moments where you go into depression, you get apathetic, you get lethargic, and you just can't be bothered with life. And everything just becomes overwhelming, irrespective of whether you're drinking alcohol or not. Like sober people who have never drunk alcohol in their lives still get into those spots, still get into those situations. And I believe that if we think 
that alcohol is somehow entwined into that conversation, then it allows our parts that really want to drink alcohol, it allows those parts to say, I told you so. We should never have stopped drinking this stuff. It's obviously that we need it, right? It's so, so, so powerful that we really need to do this. And then there is the worry that we can relapse, right? Also, at a certain point in time, we have to ask ourselves, when are we going to be done with alcohol? When are we going to be able to just say, you know what? This is no longer part of my life. It doesn't have the hold or the grip on me that it used to. I don't feel like I need it like I used to. Like, At what point does the narrative change and you understand the liquid lie and you take away the power from alcohol, right? That's what I'm getting at. And that's what I wanted to talk about in this introduction, because I think it's really, really, really important. Really important. Like for me, in my own personal journey and loads of people that I've helped through coaching, there is a beautiful moment where you're just like, wow, it has no hold on me anymore. And that's because you have made the choice, consciously or otherwise, to rely on your own power and your own inner wisdom and your own guidance. And I just want to quote a conversation I just heard on a Netflix documentary, a Netflix documentary, Netflix show called The Witcher, right? So The Witcher's in the woods and he's looking after this powerful, powerful young woman called Cirilla. She's likely the most powerful woman in the world. And The Witcher turns around and says to Cirilla, you are afraid of your power. You have power beyond measure but you're scared of your abilities. Maybe, he says, if you truly embrace who you are, if you truly embrace that power, then you will be able to access it whenever you need it. And that is really speaks and gets to the heart and the guts and the brain, the operating system of what we're doing here at Strive, is to work our way through all the challenges and all the obstacles to a point where we can look in the mirror and accept that we have a very, very powerful innate wisdom within us that has the answer to most of our most disturbing questions, including alcohol. We know deep within ourselves how to experience all the ups and all the downs that life can give us without alcohol. We know how to do that. And it can be very vulnerable and a very confronting thing to experience. Because if we can accept that we have all the power and we don't have to give alcohol power anymore, then the world is our oyster. And that can be very, very scary for people. This is why Gay Hendricks wrote The Big Leap and talked about upper limit problems. Upper limit problems are when we as human beings become terrified of taking ourselves to the next level. There is value in keeping us small. It protects us in a way, it keeps us safe, right? So if those of you out there are still giving a lot of power to alcohol, just reflect and ask yourself, what is going on here, right? What is going on? Is this truly warranted? Or is this going a little bit deeper that actually there's some questions that we need to ask about how comfortable we are about standing in our own power. You know, someone like Cirilla in The Witcher, for example, she can't just access it and go for it. She needs people and mentors and communities to guide her and to help her harness her power and to use it for good. And maybe the same is needed for you. 
Okay. Shout outs, couple of shout outs. Shout out to Polly and shout out to Susie, two strivers who have just reached six months alcohol free as fuck. <laughs> to Polly and Susie, well done, both of you. The work that they've been putting in on strike has been incredible and it's really good to see uh, that rewarding them. Okay. Um, a couple of free gifts for you folks. It is your last chance to win a one year Stripe subscription worth $1,200. Just get over to www.thestrivemethod.com, sign up for the Crush Your Alcohol Cravings Cheat Code mini course, absolutely free, and we'll enter you in a lottery that is going to be pulled on the 15th of July. So if you're listening to this on the day's release, you've got one day to get over there, get stuck into that course, and you could join us at Stripe absolutely free for an entire year. All right. And a quick reminder. If you're not following us on TikTok, on Instagram, on Facebook, on YouTube, on Substack, and our email list, you're missing out because we're one of the few entities out there that is producing new content on all of those streams. We're not repurposing it. New content on all of those streams. So go and check us out on those things. And obviously rate and review uh, this podcast as well. If you think it's great and it's changed your life, let people know. If you think it's a bag of pants, absolute shit, and you're fed up with my voice, let the people know that as well. And our guest today, Ollie Hollis, actually listened, probably listened to every single episode. How about this for a story? Ollie Hollis was really struggling with drinking at one point, found uh, one of my books that I wrote off a friend, read it, found the 1000 Day Sober podcast, started listening to it, and he ended up stopping drinking. And now has just celebrated 1000 Days Alcohol Free as Fuck. That's pretty cool, right? And that could be you if you're listening to this show. And he's a guest, right? He's a guest. He's going to be today's guest. Absolutely amazing. So Ollie Ollis, he is an HPD accredited clinical hypnotist and a registered physiotherapist with the HCPC. His speciality lies in managing pain, particularly in conditions like fibromyalgia, and he employs years and years of experience in his craft. Ollie also uses hypnosis as a remarkable tool to aid in managing diabetes through dietary changes, uh, promotes weight loss for those facing orthopedic surgeries and to encourage overall healthier lifestyle choices. And beyond the physical health, Ollie assists individuals in overcoming addictions such as smoking, drinking, and his work doesn't stop there. He addresses various anxiety-related issues and he helps people conquer everything from stage fright to specific phobias, okay? If you want to work with this amazing, incredible human being, then check out his links in the show notes or email me at thestrivemethod.gmail.com and I'll put you in touch with a fella, okay? Ollie is also a striver, and like I said, he recently celebrated 1,000 days sober. If you don't want to do the math, that is 2.7 years. Boom, boom, boom. Very, very good, right? So that's why we asked him to come on the show. And that's what this show is about. What is it like to get to 1,000 days sober? How the heck do you do that? Listen to Ollie Hollis and find out. Ollie, 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 I would have already given the beautiful people at home an introduction. So let's just get straight into it. What was your journey like that led you to the decision uh, to be, as we call it, strive alcohol-free as fuck? Where? What were some of the pivotal moments that made you decide to even try to get on that path? Oh gosh, um, it's a, it's a very banal story. It's, it's like it's like so many other people. I suppose I kind of first realised I had an issue with alcohol, like back in 2003 when I went for marriage has fallen apart, and I went to see a counsellor, thinking, right, oh, how do I fix that for the future? Yeah, 
And she just kind of casually asked, you know, do you drink? And I'm at that point, I'm just like, well, a bottle of wine and night. And she just kind of raised an eyebrow, I can't do it. And that was the first point I was aware that other people thought that was perhaps too much. I mean, there we go. So that was 2003, did nothing about it. 2006, of course, it's escalated, as it tends to do. I'll, I'll cut a long story short. I thought I went, I didn't want to join AA because that's obviously the only game in time, town in many places. I kind of went online. There was a, a secular organization called Life Ring. I kind of got some sobriety days and weeks under my belt with them. And then I, you know, I, I don't call it a wagon, but, you know, I went back to drinking. Had a lot of success l- uh, later with something called HSM, Hello Sunday Morning. Mm-hmm. And this is before. Uh, this was back. It was it was kind of different then because I rejoined it because I fell off a wagon again. And in HSN, that's actually when I first came across your book. Somebody, actually, funny enough, my partner now, but then she was just someone on HSN gave me gave me a copy of your diary book. And we'll probably get back to that. Drank again. What was the next one? Golly, golly, golly. I think I may be leaving sort of bits and pieces out. So it's always this kind of this tension with kind of going, I know I'm drinking too much. I want to do something about it. Sometimes it was kind of under control. Sometimes it was less under control. And it went absolutely bananas in 2020 with the pandemic when I just found myself with so much time on my hands. But that was just an escalation of quantity. The quality was identical to that process. And it's only, so I'll shut up in a moment. It's just that idea of I've got to do something about it. I've got to do something about it. And although I've, I've kind of read your work in 2016, and you, you'd mentioned one thing in it, which was the great white space. And by God, did I find the great white space. When I returned, I thought, what can help? Oh, that Lee Davy bloke. And I just, you had a load of podcasts. And through 2020, certainly the pandemic ended 2020, I'm just listening to your podcasts very regularly, right up to the point where I stopped drinking. It was, that was the journey. And it was just yours as a voice. I think I, I wrote this. It became your thoughts. Your thoughts became my thoughts. I, I listened to what you said. I agreed with a hell of a lot of what you said. And I just wanted a reassuring voice that I could do this. And, you know, at the time, you was, you was very much using the Prochaska model of yeah. change. Certainly, you mentioned that. And that really chimed with me because it's the thought of, oh, I get it. Change doesn't happen overnight. It can be like an evolution. Because I've had the experience of a friend, a lady I was going out with uh, back in 2007, 2008. In 2010, she just had this epiphany and bang, stop drinking. And you know when someone says, I'm going to stop drinking, and you kind of go, yeah, we'll see how that goes. She did. Didn't touch a drop after that. And she had this epiphany. And I'm like, all right, how did you do that? And at least she would tell me, and it would go in one ear and straight out the other. And I'm kind of going, you know, when you just you just can't you just can't hear the words. That's I've done too much talking again. No, <laughs> you haven't. This is this great. I mean, people, uh, the audience will be really relating, and there's loads of good stuff in there. You know, it's like, um, I mean, the first thing that, that comes up for me is you said you're drinking a bottle of wine a night. This is this is what I want really draw people's attention to. You know, it's like I did a post today in social media. I haven't posted it yet, but I did it. It's like you're drinking a bottle of wine. You suddenly realize because something has happened in your life that this habit, or for a want of a better word, yeah, is actually super destructive. And then you try to stop and you reach out to help, but your circle is full of people who 
also drink that one bottle a night or drink it in a different way. So maybe they don't drink the bottle a night, but they drink 15 pints every Saturday, 15 pints every Sunday, and then bottle uh, off the top shelf. So they look at you and they're like, well, we can't really help you, mate, because there's nothing wrong with you. <laughs> because if we was to say there was something wrong with you, then when we'd have something wrong with us. So it, it can be quite an isolating, terrifying experience, right? Yeah, you, you can. And so, I mean, I, I, I don't know what you told people. when I, I work. I've, I've worked in healthcare. I work in the NHS simply. So I'm around a lot of doctors. I will talk to doctors. And they'll kind of go, well, that's okay then. And I've, I've heard this thing that, you know, a doctor will tell you if it's okay. If you're one, if you're one unit less than him, it's kind of, it's okay. If you're one, it's, it's all relative how we gauge it. I mean, by the end of my kind of drinking career, for want of a better word, I would have given anything to have gone back to a bottle of wine a night. It's, as I say, there's no prizes for being greedy. It doesn't really matter. If it's getting in the way of you, you know, having, having a decent life, um, it's, it's getting in the way and it's just recognizing it. And you think, crikey, this is escalating. This is, this is not great. We had a, there was one of those moments, you know, when someone, you know, you draw little red lines, red lines. And I remember thinking, gosh, I'm never going to drink for breakfast. And, then you kind of go, well, a breakfast beer isn't actually so bad after all. It's quite refreshing. It's a decent way of starting the day. You're looking, now that's bananas. But at the time, you're just... Yeah. And now still- now all the pubs are open for breakfast and serving people who are drinking it as, as uh, you know, I call it the liquid lie, you know. It's, it's another way of normalising. It's like um, you go in for your eggs and bacon and, and have a kind of uh, gram of Coke or... A little kind of like a shot of heroin, like it's just bizarre. But um, yeah, we had, we had this uh, striver called Louise uh, from Australia. She only drank a couple of times a year, and she joined because even that was frustrating for her. Like she drank like four or five times a year, and was like abhorrent because she knew that this was just poison. There was no value in it. Yet she got sucked in five times a year and she really had an issue. So it just goes to show that, you know, your, your self-awareness on this thing is like super key. What was the most yeah. challenging part about deciding to quit alcohol for you? My, sorry, the first thing that came up there was making it stick. When I finally quit, it was absolutely effortless. The, all of the work went in beforehand. The So, you know, I've done the willpower, I've done the kind of, acceptance uh, you know surfed every urge of and now i look back and i think the, the whole context has changed but at the time it's really obviously i knew it was coming on here and i'm trying to think gosh what was so difficult about it when right now it's like it's so simple uh, i think you just have to reframe who the hell you are this this thing which was so important and it's it just takes over your bloody life even even when i had i had extended periods of sobriety like once of about 18 months and once of nine months and yeah, many little times of a month or two. And even when you're not drinking, you're kind of, you're thinking about not drinking. I, I didn't yeah. even think about what, once I finished, once I finished for your podcast, Lee, that was it. I was done with them as well. And I didn't even think about alcohol until I had a client of mine who was wondering about alcohol. And I thought, okay, let's see if I can help him with some of your stuff. So that's actually the first time I've thought about alcohol since I, since I stopped drinking. But mm-hmm. the challenge at the time was it just, it just, it's the relationship with it. You just have this relationship with alcohol and it's all consuming. Even when you're bloody sober, it's all, it's somewhere in your head. 
and when it's gone, it is gone. It's just, mm. it's just lovely. Well, we have a we have a striver at the moment, and um, I will reserve her anonymity. She's going to try and keep trying to get her onto the show, actually. And but you said something that fits into her the part of the journey she's on at the moment, and where I'm stepping up and trying to help her is this thing about thinking about not drinking, right? So you and I are at a stage in our life where we never think about not drinking. Like I, I never spend any time craving, feeling triggered, um, uh, deciding whether I should drink. I don't have any nostalgic, like I'm going to go to the beach after I've spoke to you. It's going to be full of people drinking beer. I do not have a single pang of like, oh yeah, I'm, I could do with that. Like, yet this beautiful woman who I'm helping at the moment on Strive is like gone like over 170 days without having a drink. Like, absolutely amazing. She still spends a lot of time thinking about not drinking. And for me, and let's just play around with this. I'd love to have your thoughts and views on it. I'll share my view on what I think is going on with my male masculine fixed energy. And then you can you can give you can give <laughs> your like, point. I'm, I'm, I'm over, I've got enough of that myself. Yeah. <laughs> I think that one of the struggles is that people have is this forever question, right? So it's like I just cannot wrap my head around not drinking forever. Yeah. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make it 30 days or 60 days or something. And I, I think that's fine. I like the, I do like the AA idea of one day at a time. It makes like perfect sense. But on the other hand, you are opening up the possibility, the opportunity for the, the parts of your personality that really relied on needing that alcohol to keep themselves, you're giving it hope that, well, it could happen again in the future, whereas what me and you have done quite successfully is we've we've actually got our old paradigm of alcohol, which is like alcohol is normal, nice, necessary, uh, natural and noble. And we've said, no, that liquid lie, as I call it, that belief system doesn't uh, fit into our worldview anymore. We now have a worldview that is like, you know, alcohol kills people and it's fucking terrible. And it does, for me, it's like alcohol has zero value in my life. Yes. If you are, if you still are wrestling with a forever question, it's because there's a part of you that thinks that alcohol has value. So your worldview still says it's part, it can be part of your life or it's valuable in some way. And then that in your lowest, lowest, lowest moment. Uh, can come along and bite you on the ass, I guess. Yeah. What, what do you What do you think? I think uh, I really like that. I mean, I'm looking outside at the sunshine, and, and you know, even when I, even in those extended periods of sobriety, I've got I've got this sorted. I, I'm sorted forever. I re, I remember feeling that this is sorted forever. What and why is this different? Maybe we can explain. But at, there'd then be a sunny day, and I'd be kind of going, "Oh no, I mustn't drink." And it's that question of, "Do I have to do this forever?" That forever's a bloody long time and you think you know am I, w- will i be okay because you know we you know just just to be factual about it you can't you can, no one can know what's going to happen tomorrow hmm. one of the things and thinking about that reminded me of, of actually a really big challenge i kind of think i can do anything this is, i know better now by the way but at the time it's like you know i can white knuckle it i i can be like a spartan i can do anything i can moderate no i'm going to be able to moderate Okay, I didn't moderate that time, but I'm going to be able to moderate. You know, 400 times later, I'm still telling myself, I'm going to, I've got this. 
why haven't I got this? It, you know, it took 16 flipping years for the penny to drop. Oh, I'm such a slow learner, but that was a challenge, realising, Ollie, you ain't got this. Now, it's different. I ain't putting no effort into this now. I, I don't even, I don't even recognise the problem. That's the difference now. But that was the challenge. How do, how do I beat alcohol? I don't well, because, because you gave it power. Yeah, yeah. And now you don't. Couldn't give a monkeys. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's like we, this is part of the liquid life for me is if you Google right now, what are the top five most addictive drugs on the planet? Alcohol is in there. The story around alcohol addiction, you know, you'll read like if you, if you come up, like it's like, take me as a coach, for example, right? Who's not had, um, uh, quote unquote, uh, numbers, letters behind your name training. You always have to have this stupid disclaimer that please check out your medical uh, supervisor and, and take medical advice before you decide to quit because um, I'm not a medical practitioner, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. That, that to me is just part of the liquid lie. It's like, um, oh, if I stop drinking here, I could die. If I stop drinking here, I'm going to have really serious consequences. Now, whilst there are people in the world who are like that, um, it is not my experience that they're listening to this podcast, and it's not my experience. That they, yeah, and it's not my experience that they come to strive. I've never had anybody come to strive who cannot stop drinking alcohol and can do so without having any um, issues with it physically. I mean, you've got to think after seven days that shit is not in your system anymore, so it becomes purely a psychological, environmental issue. Like it's not, it's not in your system. So I think. The buildup that that uh, the liquid light creates of it being this absolute monster. Cigarettes are the same, even exactly worse. Cigarette, fun. like fucking huge monster. And then you then you figure it out that it actually this is not doing anything for me. You're able to change your paradigms cognitively, and it's like, oh shit, I don't I don't crave this thing anymore. I can't even believe I did it. But that was that was the thing because I think you and I stopped smart because I know because we talked about this. Yeah, before, but Alan Carr. When Alan Carr had demolished, not, you know, Alan Carr, the author of the cigarette books, when he, cause he did the fag book before, uh, the cigarette book before he, yeah. done, before he done the alcohol, he demolishes every reason you've got for smoking. It's like, well, I smoke for this, I smoke for that, I smoke for the other. 30 reasons later, you kind of go, all right, I cave in. The, the, I haven't got, a, I haven't got a reason to smoke. And for yeah. me, that was enough to put the last cigarette out. Didn't want another cigarette since then with alcohol. The, the, my final realization of <laughs> was just how futile I was. I was trying to, dr I was literally trying to drink the world, every bit of beer in the world, and it, the futility of that. I just laughed at it. It's like, and the phrase was, and it wasn't my phrase. I, it was, but it was like, there's never enough. Hmm. No matter how much you've got, Ollie. No matter how much you've got. I had beer in my stockpile in my um, in my oven. I don't cook, but I had it, and I'm like, I've looked in the oven, there's this beer in there, that's just bananas. And it's like, there is never going to be enough. There's never mm. going to be enough. So why do you even bother? And for me, it's a really banal, it's a really trivial insight, but that was that was the epiphany at the end. Why did you, sorry, I, I'm going off on a tangent, but I don't want to forget it. Why did you change the terminology to the liquid lie? I quite, I quite liked the invisible guy and dominant beneath system. I well, thought it was good. It's because it. I still, I still call it the invisible violent dominant belief system. But what I, what I wholeheartedly believe is the reason that that belief system is invisible is it doesn't have a name. So I okay. called it, I called it alcoholism because 
this alcohol ananism. Yep, yep. But I, I but I think that's too confusing to people because they will they will recognize alcohol because alcoholism, the common terminology of it is already okay. is already indoctrinated into the liquid lie. Yeah, got it. Right. And and it's got sti- it's got stigma. So I was like, okay, the liquid lie is a lot easier than that. The other the other change I'm doing is we've never really used alcohol addiction. It's not something that we kind of chive with. So again, it's very stigmatized. So we're we're using alcohol reliance uh, a yeah. lot more. I, I have in the work I in you know in, in my other life when I'm working with people, I, I use a a beautiful biopsychosocial model of addiction. Yeah. It acknowledges the physical side of it, but also acknowledges the psychological side of it and also acknowledges the behavioral side. And it's just a very, very simple model of, yeah, if you want to call that, because people could get very hung up. Oh, is it a habit? Is it an addiction? And it's it's just terminology. And so it's just nice to get into the detailed degree of what are we talking about here? So, because that will be yeah. different things for different people. That's the biopsychosocial model, the first heard that I interviewed her, a, la- a lady, she wrote a book about it, and I interviewed her on my podcast, donkeys years ago, very smart woman. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the terminology, I look at the terminology in a different way. Like, I, I look at the terminology as being an excuse for the parts of our personality that really want to neck it down us to attach to that to that terminology and and use it as a way to keep doing what you're doing. So it's like, if, for example, using the word alcoholic, right? So when I grew up, an alcoholic was right up there with rapist, pedophile, like, you know, like they're three things, druggy. You just did not want to be called those things when you were growing up, right? And then, so the liquid lies use of the alcoholic as being, that's when you know you've got a problem, allows people like me to say, well, I'm not an alcoholic. Like I, I don't have, I don't drink out of a brown paper bag. I, I don't have all these issues that these people have. I don't smell a piss. My face isn't falling apart. So I'm not an alcoholic. So therefore, ergo, I don't have a problem. So I can still keep falling for the uh, TV ad of uh, Jim Beam or some other stupid advert of a beautiful woman tapping into a cask and sniffing it and saying it's like, it's yeah. the most beautiful thing in the world. So that that that's that's yeah. what I don't jive with terminology. But I think being able to say I'm reliant on alcohol versus I'm addicted to alcohol, I think that's a big shift for people, yeah. you know. And the, and the the simple test for me, I don't know what you think about this, but the simple test for me is just try stopping. You know, like <laughs> like some people will say to me, Ollie, when I say to them, just try stopping, and they'll say I can stop easily. Yeah. And then um, I say, well, why do you start again then? You know, and these are the people who are seriously trying to stop because they think they can, just not being facetious about it. And I say, well, I had nothing to do with the alcohol. And um, what it was, we were all going out with the boys on Saturday night, and I just felt a bit peculiar that I was the only one drinking. But it has nothing to do with the alcohol. And I'm like, brother, that is your reliance. Yeah. But they can't see it, they, you know? You, you can't see it. People will be in – I don't like the term denial, but it's actually a really good one. This one is one. Yeah. Is a useful term. It's a kind of is a sort of denial of a problem. It is very difficult to see the problem because because it is absolutely pervasive. It is absolutely everywhere. God, how many times people will say, "Well, you know, a little bit's good for you. A little bit of what you fancy is good for you." Funny enough, I was listening to a podcast on the way up here, and it was a JAMA study published actually quite recently, and it 
we've known this stuff for about 15 years anyway, but it's another big meta-analysis of, you know, is, is a little bit of alcohol good for you? No, the data show really clearly, it's, you know, funny enough, it's a neurotoxin. It's not going to be good for you in any way, shape or form. And when those those studies, oh, a little bit of red wine does you good. And believe me, Lee, I used to latch on to them when I'm like yeah. thinking, well, if a little bit does me good, then, you know, I'm pressing the magic button on my wine box. So I'm thinking, yes, it's, not, it's never going to be a health drink. <laughs> we interviewed... Um, and, and uh, what, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, it's, it's, just, it's just this idea that, you know, we know that those data are confounded with things like a lot of the people who were showing up in the abstinence groups as being like having health issues. They were people that drank two health issues and then they abstained. We've, we've known that for a long time. It's just it's a nice little analysis anyway. All right, sorry. Yeah, with the, with the red wine, it's like uh, there is, it's a resveratrol. And um, we interviewed Dr. Will Cole on here. We've interviewed him twice on here, I think, actually. And he said... The amount of resveratrol you would need <laughs> in order for you to get your healthy amount, you'd have to drink fucking cases of the shit on a day. Like you'd never get enough resveratrol in your system, right? Yet we believe, we believe the lot. Another really good one on the wine. Um, there's a great book called All Marketeers Are Liars by Seth Godin. And then he crosses out the liars and it's another word. I can't remember what it is. And he tells a story, a true story about a guy, can't remember his name, and he created uh, wine glasses designed to drink certain types of wine. And that he's and he sold the story that your wine will taste better in these glasses because of the way that I've made them. And then the wine, the, the wine culture bought into it. And then this guy was able to sell his glasses for like, I don't know, thousands and thousands of pounds because his wine enthusiasts were Dipping their wine in his glass, we're going, oh my God, this tastes so much different than having it in an ordinary glass. And then goes in and goes on to say, yeah, you get the wine expert and you stick him in a blind test situation and he cannot tell the difference between a 200,000 pound bottle of wine and a bottle of two buck chuck. And it's just all in the story, right? And, and I remember once again, I went from wine to beer, I was drinking wine. And I used to kind of, you play this little game, oh, I'm a connoisseur, I'm only buying the expensive wine. And when that starts sort of ratcheting up a few quid, if you just, eventually when you're kind of, you know, on the cheap stuff, you kind of, oh, I'm not really a connoisseur, am I? I'm just a pisshead. It's just that this kind of this little realisation that it's the alcohol that I want. And by then I was under no illusions whatsoever. Mm. But, yeah, the illusion persisted for a while. Quite a while. What, what were some of the misconceptions? That, what are some? What are some of the misconceptions you think that people have uh, around alcohol, reliance, addiction, whatever you want to call it, and recovery? Yeah, definitely one of the ones which is a really common one is this idea that if I can actually function and hold down a job and I don't get, you know, I, I never drive under the influence. You know, if if you can tick a whole bunch of ticks in your life. I can't possibly have an issue with it, even if, you know, I try not to be judgy, but, you know, you, you kind of, I think when you've lived it a bit, you can kind of see other things. You know what? You actually have got an issue. Yeah. You, you will you will see it in somebody else before they will see it in themselves. So I think this business of I am functioning, not a functioning alcoholic, but I'm functioning. Later they might label themselves that way. I think that's, I think that's a big one. It's just it's absolutely everywhere. The... It is this idea we we don't. You've actually mentioned this before, but I've, you don't have a choice in it. You do not have a choice in drinking. It's thrust on you. Very very few people 
will be that will have that kind of awareness to kind of go, I don't want to do this. Most people don't have to go down. Most people will kind of moderate and they will. We're at, well, I'm, I'll speak for myself. I was at one end of the bell curve, not down there with them underneath the bridge, you know. But I was, <laughs> although I remember this guy, Brian, he was, you know, AA 30 years, one of those solids. He was saying when he was on the park bench, they would look down at the junkies on the other park bench and they'd kind of be going, well, we're not like those junkies, you know. <laughs> we just do this. Um, golly, I've forgotten your question. But it's, it's, it's just everywhere. Misconceptions, misconceptions. Misconceptions. Yeah. I think it's just people. I look at alcohol and I do not see it as benign. I do not see it as harmless. I actually, I think if I conceptualise it anyway, if I bother thinking about it, it's as a neurotoxin. I think, mm. you know, you've got to be a little bit careful with it. It's got a history. It's got form for, for addiction. But I just think of it as a neurotoxin, I suppose, if I think of it in any sort of way. Yeah. Um, other people don't look at it like that. They see it as their entertainment. So when I play in a band, I, I make my living with drunken people dancing on Saturday nights. Most of them, I suppose, are absolutely fine with it. They are they're doing what – I don't know how much they're thinking about it, but they certainly seem to be enjoying themselves. Some of those people will have a problem. And it is interesting kind of looking around when you're scanning the audience because, yeah, I'm not scanning the audience, A, for trouble, and B, who's drinking, who's not drinking, that sort of thing. And there are people that don't drink. They are out there. Yeah, there's a, there's a few of them. There's getting more of them. Yeah. What, was some, what was some of the coping mechanisms that um, that you used that were successful or unsuccessful? Or, or And did you have any coping mechanisms that you tried and they weren't successful, but later on they were? Like, because you just hadn't had that epiphany or you just didn't realise how to use the tools, right? I I, I remember. So my coping, you know, when you look at, right, one of the things I thought would be really helpful would be, why don't I gather some data on this? And so I, I, I've actually got, God, my other half laughs. I've got spreadsheets. Most people don't have a clue how much they drank. I can tell you exactly how much I was drinking seven years ago on what any night of the year. Why I've got spreadsheets for the data. Why did I collect those data? Because I thought if I finally see what I'm drinking in black and white, I will absolutely unquestionably stop because I'll be presented with reality. Now nah, I just collected more data, so I, you know, I didn't have. I just that I thought was going to be a coping mechanism. I thought that was going to help me. Uh, spectacularly unsuccessful. Well, quite an interesting data set, to be sure. What else did I try? I, I, I ex- with my work with um, people who have got persisting pain, I got into a, a form of sort of. A, have you heard of a- acceptance and commitment therapy? Act. It's, no, uh, it's, it's, it's one of the third wave therapies. So you've got CBT, and it's a, it's a therapy. It's a it's a therapy like CBT in a way. It's, it's different, but it's a, a behavioural therapy. Point is. That was my introduction to mindfulness because acts will have it's got mindfulness in it. Mm-hmm. So I thought, oh, this is handy. I wonder if I can use some of that. That was my introduction to, oh my God, what's going on up here? And where you start getting, I started then getting some perspective on my own thoughts as thoughts. So then yeah. it all became a little bit meta. It's like, okay, I'm not just with the mindfulness experience, which which I very much enjoyed and enjoy. It wasn't just I'm having these thoughts and they were real. I mean, they are real. <laughs> they their own thing. I was getting tied up with the content of the thought until I learned how to distance myself from that content. Mm. So that was that was an interesting coping mechanism for me. It was or cope. 
I, I used that to realize that I'm having these cravings, I was calling them because everyone does. And I was realizing it's just sensations, you know, it's thoughts, it's images, it's feelings. So I tried some of the mindfulness techniques with it to a greater or lesser extent. And then there comes a point where you had to use the terminology I'm sure you're familiar with. You just press the F it button and go, sod it, I'm going to have a drink. And that's, Mm. but they kind of, you can cope up to a point. I could cope up to a point. I remember there was once where I was doing so well not drinking. And you know, this is story from the First World War that these soldiers would have superstitions that there was kind of like a bullet with their name on it. And I think in Blackadder, Baldrick's got one with a name on it. I would, I, I suddenly I had this idea that there was a bottle with my name on it. And I thought, you know, it's going to get me at some point. It's going to get me. And of course, that's your excuse at some point just to press the, the bucket switch and start drinking again. It, it's, it's a strange, it's a strange life. <laughs> I don't know. Like If you're tired of losing the battle to alcohol cravings day in and day out, then you need to learn the alcohol paradigm hack. This hack turned me from a two decade long drinker to someone with virtually zero desire to drink. And the best part, it took a matter of days, not months. And you can put this hack into action today. And if you wanna learn the secret, head over to the description code below to watch my brand new 100% free course the Crush Your Alcohol Cravings Cheat Code. And if you're quick and sign up before July 15th, we will stick you in a raffle to win a one-year Strive membership. And that's valued at $1,200. So $1,200 of value that could change your life just for registering and watching this free course, okay? So get over there, be seen, be heard, matter, strive on, we love you. See you later. I'm back home with the pod. My dad actually, he's been, he's doing so well. Fair play to him. He's smoked for like sixty odd years. You know, he's going through his biggest run. But he's, cool. he's, but his attitude around it with me, and I think it's because what I do for a living as well is, is, it's very protective and judgmental. And I, and probably that's because I've been so judgmental of him in the past, and he doesn't trust me. But the, you know, when I ask him about it, his attitude is, well, you know, like it is what it is. And if I want to drink, I'll drink. And what I find with that statement, and it's like this, this theory, you know, that I use in Strive about every desire or want emanates from approval, security or control. I, I've, I've noticed in this business how many times uh, what we do or we don't do is tied into real childhood um, issues that result in you requiring to fill your approval cup from outside of yourself, right? So like, you know, it's like my dad is saying in that statement, you know, I think he's saying in that statement, in my educated opinion, I cannot fail because you will think less of me. Okay. So if I tell you I don't give a fuck and that if I want to drink, I will, then I can never fail yeah, so when I so when I do fail, I'll just say, "Well, I told you I was going to yeah. have a drink," and 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 I see that this fear of this uh, it's like this fear of like like it's a forever question again as well as a part of that. I'm not saying it's all of that, but surely part of the forever question is, well, if I say I'm never going to drink forever and then I do, um, I'm going to look like a right idiot. I'm going to feel shame. I'm going to feel guilt. But it's a lot of it was going to be like, what are those people out there going to think of me? Because 
I've told her I'm never going to drink again, and and now that I have, and for me, it's it's kind of like no, I'm never going to drink again. If I do, I'll deal with it when it gets to that point. But right now, where I'm at, I don't want this thing in my life ever. Not for yeah. thirty days, yeah. like forever. You know, the thirty day thing I think was really useful for HSM. I remember that because I was a time I couldn't even string ten days together, and I somehow yeah. made it. Yeah. So the bit by bit approach was good. Um, that bit, I remember doing this 18 month stint and somewhere at about the 12 month mark, I'm like, yeah, I've cracked this. I've got this done. And I, I suddenly, oh, cause gosh, alcohol can half make you secretive. And at about the 12 month mark, I'm like, I'm done. I'm sorted. I'm, and then of course at 18 months, it's like I'm drinking again. And then you have to manage all of the, now I've got to keep it quiet uh because mm-hmm. people will see me drinking again and you asked me you said did i want to remain anonymous now i the thing that feels totally different this time is difficult to say it's just it feels identical to when i stopped smoking when i stopped smoking i just know that's it i'm done with it when mm-hmm. i stopped drinking back in september 2020 it's like that's it i'm done with it totally gone so i don't have to worry about this now because i'm sorted but that point of the forever when you when you are still kind of captivated by alcohol forever seems a really really long time now mm. it's just like it's like that's, that sounds fine <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it's the, you kind of have to reframe I think you actually become do you do you become a different person I think you do I think for me it's I mean I definitely be the way do you become a different person I like the model of Krasimir Dabrowski in Positive Disintegration. So, not familiar with it. Go. So, he's basically saying there are different. So, do you know, like Eric Erickson talks about that we go through different stages of development. Yeah. But it is. I'm a bit um, familiar. I'm not, not very familiar, but a bit familiar. So, so he, he talks about going through different stages of development, but it's chronological. So, like, if you can imagine a video game, let's say, between the ages of uh, naught and five, I'm going to butcher this because I I don't know it verbatim. Um, but if let's say during that age you were developing, you're developing your picture and vision of yourself in the world, and that you are accepted in all of your glory, perfect or otherwise, by your peers and your caregivers who are like feeding and mirroring that back to you. And then you're going to come out of that stage with a healthy sense of shame mm-hmm. or an unhealthy sense of shame, as using that as an example, right? It's not picture perfect, Ericsson. And then if you come out of that stage with an unhealthy sense of shame, then you go into the next stage of development, which could be autonomy, but you're going into it and you haven't vanquished the foe from the previous level of the video game. You haven't killed the shame monster. So now you're going into the second level and you're injured a little bit because you've got this shame and now you're trying to get autonomy. And so each stage, you you don't defeat the end boss and move into it in full glory. You're limping into these different stages until you eventually become a fucked up adult who decides just out of the, out of the whim you're going to have four kids and you're completely incapable of looking after them because you because of the way you grew up, right? So this is like the classic reparenting. What Dabrowski says is we can be in different stages of our life, irrelevant of how old we are. So we can be like 45 and still be, to use a a movie metaphor, and still be stuck in the matrix at 45. 
and the world looks like this, you're really just reacting to the world around you. You are receiving your approval and your security control from outside of you. You're very codependent on everybody outside. You do what the the system tells you to do. You follow the government's orders. You follow the rules. You follow the societal norms and you get married in a church, even though you don't believe in God. You have kids, you buy a car, you buy a house. And he calls this like, like, this is like, like the, it's not even level one. It's like the lowest level. Okay. So. When I realized I had a problem with drinking, in hindsight, I can see that I was in that that non-level, like I was in the matrix, right? Yeah. And what happened and is hap- what is happening to me now is I'm positively disintegrating as I go through levels, going from a caterpillar who was just like um, you know, following all these rules and, and not even thinking to becoming this butterfly, which is somebody who has a very, very secure attachment style, uh, somebody who resources their own approval, security control from within, uh, is very mindful, very compassionate, the eight C's of self, five P's of self, you know, using internal family systems. And a good example of that is um, this morning, you know, me and my wife had a bit of a set two this morning, um, nothing too out of the ordinary. And I had to receive some feedback from her, right? now. When I was in the uni level, as Dabrowski calls it, when I was in the matrix, the way that I would respond to getting that feedback was I would be judgmental and defensive and try to back my corner. Yeah. Now I've gone up a few levels, not saying I don't do this 100% consistently, but this morning I could feel my heart rate elevating and I was able to just slow it down, just breathing while in the same vicinity as her. I was able to shut my fucking mouth. I was able to listen to what she was saying. And I was able in the end to say, I hear what you said. I'm going to reflect on that. And this is what I'm hearing from you. How do I, how can I help you, et cetera, et cetera, right? So I'm communicating. So I'm because I'm positively disintegrating, I'm learning how to communicate more effectively. I'm learning how to ground. I'm learning how to self-regulate. I'm learning how to do all these different things, right? So... That is a long-ass uh, answer to your question. Do you become a different person? Yeah, I am becoming a different person, and I haven't finished yet. And one last thing, and I'll shut up, is this is, this is I think, why Strive really struggles from a marketing perspective is I get it at a much deeper level. I don't want to help you, Ollie, to quit drinking alcohol. I want to help you get up those levels so you're 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 positively disintegrating into the butterfly i want you to become but people don't want that because they love the matrix do you remember but it's it's thank you i also i say as i'm listening to that because you you get information and you kind of you hook it onto stuff that you already know yeah um i believe i believe that my first degree was in philosophy uh, and i'm listening to you and i'm thinking all oh, this done off remind me of heidegger in a way the, 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 oh gosh! And now I've forgotten the flipping point. I was going to make. Uh, that, that's such a shame. The Matrix. Yeah, it, it's yeah. It, Lee, I, I've, I've lost it. It's it's. I have lost it. I, I can remember back. the Heidegger point, but that's really not the interesting. Well, Pla- Pla- Plato's allegory of the cave is a, is a another really good aged old philosophical view on this. Like th- this is the yeah. thing. This is not new. Like 
Like the, I don't know how long Plato was uh, had his quill out, but it was a long time ago, right? Yep, uh, it was. Yeah, the, the, these ideas that yeah we are not seeing reality exactly kind of as it is. It's all there are there are filters. Definitely with, with the shadows on the cave, that idea. Definitely with the Heideggerian idea that we're thrown into a world. Definitely with this idea of you know this the developmental stuff. I'm not really across, but the behavioural stuff more so. The thought that does occur to me, because I remember, you know, how much of it comes from earlier life, you know, how much of this idiot drinking just comes from, that was a bit judgmental, wasn't it? How much is that behaviour, does it come from early life? I don't know. I know I could never find a cause for me drinking when I kind of looked for it. Other, other than it's like if yucky stuff comes up in here, I would have alcohol and that would kind of squash it down. So if I had anxiety... I would drink and, oh, yeah, the humanity, the anxiety has gone. And, of course, how does that work out? You end up having more and more to squash and up, back and up and down, up and down the anxiety until you're drinking lots to get rid of the anxiety until the penny finally drops. Is the alcohol causing the anxiety? I think it might be. <laughs> but that's an interesting moment where you kind of go, this stuff that I think is really helping me calm my anxiety. Right. Well, when, bloody, when, bloody when you're causing going- it. When you're going through those levels, somebody who's in the uni level, for example, you can have a conversation and ex- and and explain to them your theory or your logic and your rationale around alcohol causing anxiety. So you're actually causing your own perpetual loop. They can get it rationally and logically, but because they're in the uni level, it's not going to stick. It's it's what Jeremy Griffith calls like the death effect, right? It's not within the system's the word I'm looking for, benefits to take it on board and listen to it until it is. And that's the that's the epiphany. Like until the epiphany comes on board, which which then for me leads to what I call the vow. Like that, that really I'm at the church, I'm looking in this woman's eyes, and I'm vowing that I'm never going to sleep with another woman again in my life and I'm going to be with you till I die. That moment of I'm never going to quit drink alcohol again. Like it's very difficult to teach. But we both experienced it. It's like it's like there has to be a moment where you make a fundamental choice to live your life very differently and start to move up those levels, right? Like I I, I really think like that was a powerful stuff. And for me, Ollie, I never I'm like you, I, I never drank for any other reason than the liquid lie had brainwashed me into believing that it was normal, necessary, natural, nice, and noble. Yeah. Yeah. And because I believed those five ends, it just made sense to drink. And then when I stopped believing those five ends, it didn't make sense to drink. Yeah. And I'm a very rational, logical guy. But I didn't drink alcohol to deal with my childhood trauma. I shouted at people. No, I did. Like, I yeah. just lost my shit. People say to me, what did you use for coping mechanisms then if you didn't use drink? I just, I didn't. I just shouted at people. That was how I coped. Wonder what? Uh, yeah, how did I, how the hell did I cope? I don't know. Um, I can't remember how I coped. While oh, first time round was the encounter with the big white space actually, and I, I think I think the way I coped, I spent all my life on HSM. I did a lot of writing actually. It's quite it's quite good. You express yourself quite a lot. Well, you're a very good writer. Thank you. I, I do enjoy it. And on HSM on Hello Sunday morning, I wrote absolutely loads. Second time round, I didn't have so much big white space. I didn't do quite so much writing. I think I just kind of white knuckled that one. I just kind of coped by kind of going, yeah, I will not let it defeat me. Don't know what happened there. 
that experience here, the, the white space of it, what I like about the strife, what I particularly like about the strife thing is the acknowledgement of, okay, now you don't drink, what are you going to do next? What are yeah, you do? how are you going to fill that white space? Yeah, and look, there ain't there ain't no white space this time. I think, as I told you, my, my day 1,000 was exactly like my day one. The moment I had that epiphany, that was it. I was done, I was sorted. Yeah. And it was just like a 1,000 days of being day one. Um, there was no white space on the last time. There was no white space, but it was good. I just remember you saying on your podcast, and I'd be really hungover, I'd be listening to your podcast, you'd be going, you'd be going, strive this, strive that, and you'd be going, and stage six, and I'm just fucking done with it. And I thought, I'm having that. I'm having that. <laughs> Whatever that man's got, I'm having it. <laughs> but it was, it was your, it was, that's kind of what I hung on to. That's when I said I liked your podcast. It was, it was that simple, clear idea. And they were really punk podcasts. I think he was doing them on an iPhone in a bloody Starbucks in California. I was, I, was, uh, I would uh, go to Starbucks and work there all day when I was living in Tahunga Canyon. And then I would, I would just talk about how I was thinking and feeling during the day. He was actually inspired by Gary Vaynerchuk because he kind of does the same thing. It's like, and that book, the first book you read that I wrote, it wasn't really about alcohol per se. It was just getting my thoughts and the way I think out on paper because I I had this thing where I want to be a bastion of light to allow people to express their thoughts no matter what they are free from the chains of societal conditioning, right? So if I want to tell you that last night I had a dream about my sister when I was having sex with her, right? I want to tell you that that's the dream I had last night and to be fully unencumbered by any social stigma that there's something wrong with me because I had a dream that I had sex with my sister, something that I cannot control, right? Can't control your <laughs> right. So, so like a friend, a friend said, what a friend said to me the other day, people are going to be listening to this and say it's very on PC, but you know, he, he, um, he's renting a place out and, um, the, he rented out to, um, a guy who's homosexual. Right. And the first night that he moved in, he brought a boyfriend around with him. And my friend said to me, I don't have a problem uh, with gay people, but I had, I, it was really uncomfortable that, that first night for me. And I want to talk to you about why that is. Like, do I have a problem? Right. Now, holy shit, man, you need to be vulnerable enough. Yeah. And trusting in the world or someone to say what he said for you to then ask him. So tell me more about that then. Otherwise, it just stays in his head. Yeah, and and that thought could, if he has a big inner critic, turn into a big pounding, which could, if he has uh, a tendency to drink alcohol, to drink more alcohol, right? Like, and this is where for me, strive the community. Like, I, I I want to always encourage people to be open and to share and to talk about things that would make other people's toes curl, but it doesn't make our toes curl. It's really difficult though, <laughs> but for me, it's so refreshing. Yeah, I think I think also, you know, if you're a therapist, you kind of you learn to listen in a very non-judgmental way as well. So, and you kind of realise a lot of people, you know, in the public, they they don't do that. They don't listen in, in that kind of therapeutic. Or, way. or I don't do it 100 percent of the or, time. Or be or be okay, be okay with be okay with judging. So, for example, if I tell you that uh, I had a dream that I was uh, having sex with my sister. 
I think it's perfectly okay for you to go, oh, that's a bit weird, judgmental, and then check into yourself and go, oh, I was a little bit judgmental there. What's going on for me here? Why is this an yeah, issue fine. for me? I I'll think that is perfectly okay. I got to be honest, when I do my marketing or I'm on the podcast and I'll, and I'll go into this societally conditioned way of saying, that's right, you will find a judgment-free community. And I stop myself. And I almost want to write, ask drive, we will judge the absolute fuck out of you. And then we will yeah. stop and we will get grounded and we will ask ourselves, what is it about me that I hate in that person who, yeah. or that sprays on sentence, right? No, nah, fair play. That's probably a little bit more accurate. Yeah, that, that is. I that think so. Quite funny. I think so. I think that's, so. That's cool. So, well, should we end this? I'll show you seven more minutes. What do you wish more people understood? about this liquid lie as i call it gosh let me have a little think about that like do it i've, I've got i've got a very good friend at the moment who's uh, so many metaphors i've got so many, you know the one that springs to mind is, is the, the idea that the fish is the last the fish is going to notice the water last of all because when you're swimming in it you just do not notice it we are literally we're we just we're inhabiting we, we don't choose which culture we inhabit you know, here I am in, I'm in East London at the moment. My son's in the States. Very, very different cultures. You're just thrown into your culture and you do not choose your friends. So you've got the culture, you've got your friends, all those voices. And in there is this normalized behavior of drinking. Mm. Most people are kind of, I, I say most people are okay with it. I don't know. I suppose they are. And I think I wish people knew that you can get into a pickle with it. In, in a way which is just not shown. I mean, you never see, you never see an advert for someone having a beer at breakfast. I'll tell you that. You, you just don't see that. You don't see how they, it narrow, the trouble, the trouble with drinking all the time when it's an, when it's an issue is it just narrows the focus of your, your life down. Your behavioral repertoire goes right, right down. And I know when I was drinking, there was so much that I was not doing because it was just all focused around bloody drinking. That does not happen overnight. It's a slippery slope. Now, some you, you must know, because there are some people and they just take to alcohol like that and they are whoa, are off and running. But I think for certainly I was a little there at Strive a little bit, the people I met on HSM, the people I've met in, in Life Ring, it's usually a slippery slope type thing. And like your lady who was just drinking just a couple of drinks a year, my first friend who had the epiphany, again, wasn't drinking much in terms of quantity. And yet this substance it, it can occupy your thoughts in a in a really big way, and I think that's what people don't appreciate about it. That it can just kind of get under your skin. In real, how does alcohol get under your skin? How does it do that? Well, do you, think, do you know what? Do you know what just come up for me as you're saying that is um, I'm doing a lot of editing at the moment for the poker documentary that I'm creating. So I'm using this right. software called DaVinci Resolve. Oh, I know that one. You know it? Okay, so big learning different- curve. It has different tracks, right? So a track yeah. is like a space or a path where you can put some video in there, audio, and there's different tracks. Yeah. So yeah. what I was thinking when you said that then, Ollie, was for me, I don't know you think about this, but there's this track and it's your life, right? So you, you, you have this track and it's your life and you grow up as a kid. Yeah, I'm just let me just use my track. Grow up as a kid. Uh, your dad's left you before you're even born. Your mum meets another dad. He's emotionally incapable of taking care of you. 
They then have four kids, so your wants and desires and needs are not taken care of because there's four of you and you've got a pot of piss and your dad's working around. You're half Chinese, you get bullied, et cetera, et cetera. That's your life track. And throughout that track, you've got trauma, you've got inner child wounding, you've got people leaving you and divorces and heartbreak and all this kind of stuff going on, right? That's your track. Then you've got this other track, and this track is alcohol, right? You're drinking alcohol. You start by drinking a baby sham and blah, whatever, but it's a different track. They do blend in a way, but they're different. And what I mean by that is there'll be lots of shit in the light track that we are not dealing with. And we are not taking care of, which keeps us stuck in the matrix. And alcohol and the alcohol track, when we blend with it, it's a convenient tool that just keeps us stuck in the matrix. It just dumbs us a little bit. It, a, a client of mine just went 150 days without drinking at a big bender, and then he was out of it for a week. So th- think about it, right? If you're out of it for a week after you've had a bender, how can you deal with the fact that you've got a trauma or you've got to see a therapist or you've got to see a coach or you've got to you've got to like learn to speak to your kids left brain and right brain <laughs> like how can you deal with all that shit when you when this I thing's fucking you up no Lee, I, I love it and I like the tracks but I was going to say look, you were looking at a bloke who had years worth of real hard data of how much alcohol was fucking me up and I'm looking at the data and I'm analysing it and I'm still going yeah, but I wonder if I can manage it somehow. But it's like, well, I, anyone, I, anyone else would just look at those data and just go, no, how's it working out for you, Ollie? It's not yeah. working out at all. Yeah. I mean, that's how, that is how alcohol keeps you stuck. You can't even see the nose on the end of your face. Yeah. And because of the normalization of the liquid lie, it's really, really difficult for you to stop because you're okay. just so afraid of what world, what the world would look like without it. Hey, like, it's because you don't – I was thinking about this. I don't think you know who you're going to be when you've stopped. You don't right. know the person you're going to be because you all you know is you, you, your identity is so context-dependent as a drinker. You know that you stop drinking. Who, who the hell are you going to be? Now, I, as it turns out, I'm really happy with who I am this side of it. Yeah. But I didn't know that that side. I was afraid of it. I was afraid of what's it going to be like. It's It's bloody fine. It's better than fine. Yeah. And there is no effort involved in it. But when you're drinking, you've got an identity that is alcohol dependent and it does keep you stuck and you can't bloody let it or you feel like you can't let it go. Which is and why. And, in, and just stopping drinking is not enough because you have to let the identity go. I let it go for 18 months or nine months, but the identity was still there. That's what, you know, that's, that's what kept me stuck. There's a chef table pizza version on netflix there's an italian chef on there and he became huge and a huge popularity wise but huge weight wise uh-huh. and he said in order for him and then that led him down a road of drug abuse alcoholism infidelity lost his wife lost his kids but he's still this massive celebrity he said in order for him to recover he had to he had to kill this person he'd become So so he went to the hospital and he had a drastic stomach surgery, which virtually cut half his stomach in half. And now you look at him and he's still huge, like six foot or tall, but he's he's built like a brick shithouse and he's strong. He's not he's not fat. Right. Like he's not overweight. But he said, I had to kill that. I I had to physically kill that thing somehow for me to be able to get over it. And I think that's that's what you're saying, that 
then these this is the vow for me. Like it's it's Robert Fritz's fundamental choice, primary choice, secondary choice, right? Like you can make the primary choice to stop drinking, but if you do not make that fundamental choice to in in strive ours is to live a self-led life or to live more consciously, it's going to be really difficult to stop drinking. There needs to be something more powerful than I'm going to stop drinking because you'll just end up white knuckling it. Yeah. And I think I think the biggest issue in the whole industry around sobriety or alcohol-free is fuckness, as we call it, right, is that people just get lazy by default, this human condition, and they white knuckle. Like even at Stride, you've got all the tools in the world, you've got all these wonderful quest structures, you've got all these things, you people will still choose to white knuckle over doing that shit, right? And um, you can end up, me and you both said this, you can end up stopping drinking and still be a right dick. Yep. And that's white knuckling it for me. It, it is, it is, yeah. it is. And also white knuckling is hard. It's like, you, I wish everyone could have an epiphany, is basically it. But you have, yeah, well, to, work, you have to work at that epiphany for yourself. That's... And whatever that is, it can actually be very trivial. But once you find, once the penny drops, it's as you say, you're just fucking done with it. I think if you can, if you can create, if you can create the belief that it's not a question of if, but a question of when, you're epiphany, you're and and surround yourself with the right people. That then your epiphany will come. Now, whether that that was was your message on the podcast, that was what I latched on to. There was a process of change. And because I was just thinking, oh, fuck, I'm failing, I'm failing, I'm failing. And what I heard from the podcast was there is a process of change. Just keep on, Ollie, just keep on. You're going to get there. You're going to get to stage six and you're just going to be done with it. And, and it's like, it's like, um, it's like Lego blocks. So, so what what I want to do is strive is like, I, I want you to keep, keep, compounding your successes so alan carr helped me stop smoking 22 years ago 13 years ago i didn't even have to read the alcohol book because i'd or i took that building block of the of the smoking and i said that is going to be i'm going to use the same process and and to analyze alcohol and it was it was the same it fitted like a glove and i'm just like okay this is like this is this is it for me I know we got to wrap it, but but that that was quite interesting because I I tried the Alan Carr alcohol book, so I'm thinking, well, it worked with smoking, well, it worked, didn't work with the drinking, but I was not ready, and it just had to be a longer process. And for me, it was a completely different book, <laughs> but it was yeah. it gave me the seed of me going, oh, I can do this, and all the stuff I'd listened to from you, all the stuff, I'd, all the work I'd done as well. And like I say, when when the apple finally falls from the tree, it looks quite dramatic. Look, he's alcohol free. It's that like there were long time hmm. ripening, ripening, well, ready to have it. Harley, congratulations on your one thousand days sober. You listened to the podcast. Now you're a, a guest on it. We'll have you on again in the future for sure. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you. I'm going to go to Barry Island and have a lovely time down there and build some sandcastles. So you take care, yeah. Yeah, you take care. Like, money, guy. Bye for now. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Just a few thank yous. First of all, I want to thank uh, you guys and girls for listening to this podcast and being supporters of it. Many people stop drinking alcohol just by listening to this podcast. I got a lot of people reaching out to me, thanking me for that, right? So give this to somebody as a gift today or rate and review the podcast. If you can rate and review the podcast on your local podcast player and tell somebody about it, you could change somebody's life today, okay? So thank you for listening and thank you in advice. 
in advance for that piece of service. Also want to thank our producer, Stan. Um, Stan is still currently in the Ukraine fighting the war and producing our podcast while his family is somewhere else in the world right now, okay, apart from him. So everybody send out your prayers and your love. Stan, we love you. Thank you very much for everything you do here. For you out there, if you are starting to think about, contemplate, uh, reflect on your relationship with alcohol, you do not have to do this alone. Yes, you drink alone, but you don't have to stop alone, okay? And if alcohol is not your thing, but you are starting to feel that you actually are living a parts-led life, the ego is getting in the way too much, so you're not happy with the way life is going, then reach out to us at thestrivemethod at gmail.com. Just say, Lee, and just tell me what is on your mind, and we'll start to have that conversation. Strive community is a beautiful place where you can start to feel seen, heard, and matter. It's where you can get community, and it's where you can start practicing what we call the eight C's of self, our core values, right? Or creativity, curiosity, uh, connection, compassion, courage. Uh, I can't remember the rest of them, but there's eight of them, right? And we have our quest structure. So we have assignments, and they're really interesting, exciting. At the end of them, we say to you, come on. Do this quest, right? Get involved in this challenge. Um, and strivers are really finding it exciting. And they're working their challenges in these areas that are going to increase the amount of time they spend in self-energy, in a state of flow. And that is has amazing repercussions for the relationship you grow with yourself and for how you how you reach out to others in their life, like how you parent, how you um, are as a child to your, not child, but a son or a daughter, how you are in your relationship with the person you share your bed with and how you behave with your employees, right? So reach out to me at strivemethod at gmail.com if you want to learn more. Okay, much love, everybody.